Thomas this morning we're going to move on to, to Judas Iscariot. Let's just read, uh, I'm going to read the first eight verses in chapter 10. It says, and then, sorry, and when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Livius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans, enter you not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received. Freely you give. Let's pray again. Father, just as we look into your word, thank you for it. Thank you for the life of Christ that is recorded for us. So Judas, obviously, is well known for being the one that betrays Jesus. And interestingly, this is in Matthew, this is the first time that we see the list of the twelve apostles. And they're just named and it gives a very brief description of a couple of them as being brothers or who their father is. But in verse 4, it includes with Judas Iscariot, it says, who also betrayed him. Great. Off the bat, the first time we see Judas mentioned, it includes his betrayal. And I just find it's interesting that in the narrative given to us here, there's no misrepresentation. There's no room for us to look at Judas as anything other than the one that betrays Jesus. And, but that's given to us. When we look at the rest of what we see about Judas, we don't see that the people around him saw that same thing that we're looking at. They didn't know that Judas was going to be the one that betrays Jesus. And that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. When we read this passage, it opens that he calls the twelve disciples and he gives them power against unclean spirits and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And he sends them forth to preach and to heal. Judas is included in that group of men, those twelve. Judas is one of the twelve who is sent to preach Jesus to the nation of Israel, going around traveling town to town, preaching about Jesus, healing sick, and casting out 
assume that Judas did all those things. You look at how the others view him throughout every time he comes up, nobody suspects anything negative about Judas. He had to have done all those things just like the other apostles did. He wasn't, he wasn't separate from them in any way. He was just a part of that group. He was an intricate part of that group. And so when we see that Jesus, Judas is betraying Christ, we think about that ministry that he was involved in. Not only was he there throughout Jesus' ministry, he would have been there in the ship when Jesus calmed the storm.
evangelists are preaching. The kind of personal magnetism he displayed drew people to him. Early in his career, he was chosen to be a college president at a small school in the Midwest. Neither the academic setting nor the administrative duties motivated him. Chuck and Billy often talked about theology. It seemed that Chuck was more an astute student, maybe even more intellectually superior to Billy. Some of the studies of the Bible perplexed Billy, while Chuck seemed to resolve the theological issues. Both were young evangelists for youth for Christ where Chuck returned to study at Princeton Cemetery, and he later became a politician and a writer. At a conference center in the mountains of South California, Billy made a commitment to preach the scripture, often quoting it exactly as the verse appeared. It was a life-changing experience for him. Those who heard Chuck Templeman preach admired his intellectual sermons and theological interpretations. His intellectual capacities were brilliant. In 1957, Tuckman resigned the ministry and left the faith on his spiritual life. The other preacher was Billy Graham, who preached to more people in person than any other evangelist who ever lived. When someone asked Billy Graham about the success of his crusades, he said, prayer, prayer, when he preached, the theme was always, the Bible says. Around 1950, Billy Graham wrote one of his earliest books. It was called, Peace with God. A little later in his career, Chuck Templeman wrote his book, Farewell to God. These two men both had the same opportunity to study and to know the gospel. And in fact, Chuck seemed to have a better grasp on the Bible compared to Billy. But in the end, Chuck Templeman renounced his faith, denying Jesus and turning his back, and even fighting and teaching against Christianity. You have an opportunity. Anybody sitting here has the opportunity to receive the gospel. But those of us observing, we can't tell whether what the other person in the room says and does is from their heart. I wonder if there were any signs that people looked back at Chuck Templeman's life and thought, well, there was something that <laughs> might have been a red flag, but they just hadn't noticed. I wonder if people were able to look back and, and see things kind of crept up that indicated that maybe he wasn't what he appeared to be on the surface. But that often happens. We see people 100% it looks like bury themselves into study and into ministry and serving in the church and become leaders in the church. And then soon after they fall away. Completely denying up in the process, but their heart never gets into the truth. 
sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment and spiked with it, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Notice that, again, make sure that you know this is the man who's going to betray you. Why was this, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. There, what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone, against the day of my burying, as she kept this. For the poor always you have with you, but me. Verse 5, Judas asks a question about the cost of the ointment. And he says, it could have been sold for so much money, and that could have been given to the poor. Sounds like a reasonable question, a reasonable statement. But why did we waste this when it could have done so much good? It seems like a spiritual kind of question to ask. But if you think about that, does that line of thought mean that when we work and earn a living, that we shouldn't have any nice things to enjoy? Well, 
abundance in life, when, I, when life is going good, that's an indication of my godliness. I must be pleasing God because I'm getting good things. Life is, life is easy, therefore God is blessing me because of my good and holy life. But Paul says no. God, he, he rephrases it. He says godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. But whatever state we're in, if we can love and praise and serve God and not wish to have something that we don't have, be content in whatever state we're in, whatever life circumstance we have found ourselves in. If we're serving God in that and we're content where we're at, that is a great thing. It has something to do with abundance and wealth and receiving these external blessings. It's about our gain is in serving God in our ability to serve God and being satisfied with what, we're, what we have. Does that mean that we shouldn't have things? It doesn't say that. Just that we need to be content with what we have. If we're always searching, trying to achieve more, trying to gain more, our focus is in the wrong direction. But he certainly doesn't condemn people for having things. And so we could carry on looking at that, but that's really the point is, is that Judas's assumption here that we should have absolutely nothing beyond the absolute essentials isn't really a biblical point of view. And although the people around him didn't have the same advantage we have, we see Judas's motivation because the narrative gives it to us here. In verse 6, it says, Jesus never confronts him. 
times a person among us, a false convert among us, somebody who will betray us,
tell people what Christ has done for us. Tell people what the Bible, what God can do for others. Lord, the story of Judas is an incredible story of patience that Jesus had with humanity, enduring all that time, knowing that Judas would betray him. things help us to grow and trust in